here was our uh, here was our part of our uh, action center on Wednesday. Had a really good crew here. I was really happy to see as many people there. If you don't come, I please encourage you to do so. These guys on the right, you know who you are. I'm drawing out some blood flow. One's on the left working on a couple of children. Rachel Plexi. There you go. Nobody's excited. So um, we do a lot of different stuff in there. So I really, really encourage you to come and kind of get more out of it than just grabbing some work and going, if you can. Okay. A couple of quick uh, logistic things, and then we'll get cooking. And whatever we don't get done today, your lecture exam isn't until Wednesday. Okay. We should get done with everything today, but if, if there's like a slide or two that we don't finish, we'll do it on Monday. Okay, no worries for me. So just a couple of quick questions on um, blood flow stuff and some um, inconsistencies uh, on my end. Um, princeps pollicis, you guys learned that in lab. Comes off of blood artery. Radial, so I neglected for whatever reason to have that in your online lecture. Please include that in the blood flow you need to know for lecture. Princeps pollicis comes off the radial. It's the one that goes to your thumb. Right, it's essentially this, the thumb version of, you know, those other arteries. Make sure you include that in your lecture. And then remember that that list I give you, one or two people have told me that there's some things that aren't on that list of vessels I give you. Remember, I thank you and I will update it. But remember, I told you that's not, may not be comprehensive. I try to get everything, but always go by kind of your lecture stuff and your online stuff. So. One other kind of mistake I have in the online lecture, uh, the circumflex for the femoral, for the thigh region, they come off the deep femoral, not the femoral. I need to get that changed in the online lecture. So the circumflex femoral arteries, you guys can call them circumflex because they're in the femoral region, come off of the deep femoral, not the femoral like I said in your online lecture. So if anybody sends me an email about that, is everybody clear on that? So that I know if you send me an email about that that you weren't here in lecture today. <coughs> and I can just delete it. Any other questions? Today you guys have open land hours from 5 to 7, right? I suspect they're going to be pretty busy. So I would recommend that you go in and you have a good idea of exactly what you need. The most important things to hit first. Get those done, and then everything else after that will be crazy, okay? Because they tend to be pretty hectic. Remember, Tuesday, Thursday students, we have from 3 to 5 today, and that is for only Tuesday, Thursday students. I recognize that some of you can't make the 5 to 7, and I'm sorry about that, but there's nothing we can do from our end about scheduling conflicts like that. You just kind of have to try and make those things, okay? Anybody have any questions on that? Everybody good. Any questions about anything? Did everybody sign up for their practical, one, way one or way the other? Everybody do it? What did most, how many people chose the new way? Wow, nicely done. How many people chose the usual way or the old way? Oh Excellent. Okay. Remember, you're not locked into that the rest of the semester. You can go back and forth for every practical you do. Okay, so if you like it this way or you don't do it, it doesn't matter, okay? Each practical you're going to sign up. We want to make sure that you guys know that, okay? Just one more quick thing on, we were doing some uh, some clinical stuff with um, hands and feet. I wanted to throw this up there again, Hammer.
all that are common things. But this one I wasn't able to fill out. This is a good morning picture for you. Because you have had breakfast, right? This is that compartment syndrome I've referred to a few times. And remember, this whole unit on extremities, we've talked about compartments or regions. For example, calf region is broken up into compartments, uh, anterior, posterior, and lateral. Via, kind of those bones and the interosseous tissue and the fascia between them, right? Well, those are, those are immovable. Those have no give to them for the most part. So if you have a rupturing of a vessel or some sort of swelling within a compartment, that stuff has nowhere to go. It's kind of like if you have swelling in your brain, on your skull. It's got nowhere to go. You have to release the pressure, which in your skull, they'll literally cut an opening in your skull a lot of times. But here, how they release the pressure is they literally just and just cut right through that deep fascia, allowing that pressure to be released. Happens quite a bit in the thigh and the calf. You'll notice a lot of these are calf muscles. And it's just because of some sort of trauma to that leg or that thigh, and you get a buildup of a swelling and a buildup, and it has nowhere to go. You have to release it. So they just go in and they just slash you McSlasherton. Pretty awesome. Probably not if it's happening to you, but it's fabulous. Okay. Let's move on, shall we, to finish up with joints, yes? Now remember, 
this thing from the last time. Basically, the most mobile joints are often the most unstable, and that's going to come up into our discussions today. Okay? So, and I think we talked about this already as well, right? The first the sheets and all that. We've seen that common um, tendinous sheet in the hand when we talked about that. So let's move on. We're going to start with the shoulder joint. So I don't remember what what. Uh, oh my gosh, what order I gave you these notes? And I have to look around. So this should be at the end of your outline on joints. Okay. So just as a reminder, just as a review, you do not have to write this down. You all know this by now. Okay. We've got our clavicle. We have our scapula, obviously, right? As parts of that scapula, we've got the chromium, chromium process, either one. That's the one that's kind of the bump on the posterior side of your shoulder. And then you have the coracoid process right there, which is anterior. That all ring a bell. Okay, fabulous. So those are going to be the players when we talk about your um, glenohumeral or your, or your shoulder joint. Now, there are my notes. So one of the things about uh, your shoulder joint, your clavicle, anybody here ever broken their clavicle? Yeah, wow. Really? How'd you guys do it, Diane? Either one of you? Uh, soccer. You fell on it? Just fell on it sideways? Really? Dang, how fast were they running? I thought maybe you like ran into the support pole or something. Oh, somebody, yeah. How about you? A what? Ballpark accident. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like realized that as soon as I raised my hand, I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> where, you, where are you drinking? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Just really getting up to all that 25 miles an hour in your Okay, so normally, I was hoping there'd be a normal one in there. Normally, you can often break your clavicle if. A lot of football players break their clavicle. Tony Romo, you remember him from Dallas that used to break his thumb like when the wind blew? <laughs> so he broke his clavicle, I think, a few times, right? But it's easy to break. We'll talk about Sam Bradford in a minute, too. But if you get tackled, like when the quarterbacks get tackled and they land just right on, right on the shoulder, and what it does is it's just the force of that. This clavicle acts kind of as a strut, if you will, to keep your appendage kind of away from your body. So if you land with an outstretched arm, it can potentially just kind of put that force up onto your clavicle. Or if you get tackled, you ever watch, uh, what's the skating? Hockey, thank you. <laughs> Where they get slammed into the board and they're just like, ah, like that, right? You can often break the clavicle pretty easily with that, okay? So keep that in mind. Keep the whole stability versus mobility thing in mind as we talk about this glenohumeral joint. Shoulder joint is often referred to as glenohumeral because it's the humerus that goes into what's that fossa called? The glenoid fossa. So hence the glenohumeral joint. Okay? Now, a couple of things, important things to remember about this joint. Here's some important points. First of all, it is the most mobile joint in your body. It is a ball and socket joint. The other ball and socket we have, of course, is your hip, right? So it is a incredible mobility. It does everything. It's the works bar, the buffet of movement, which means the trade-off is what? It's very unstable, okay? 
So just by definition, because it's so mobile, it's going to be slightly unstable. And then if you look at, look at this, here is your scapula. Here is the cavity, the glenoid cavity or fossa that the head of that humerus is supposed to sit in. It is not nice and deep like the acetabulum, you know, in the, in the hip. It's super shallow. So you've got this incredibly mobile ball of the humerus in this very shallow joint. It is very easy for that to get just kind of popped out of that joint. Incredibly, if it was deeper, it'd be great. But it's not, it's shallow. So what we do, so that prevents or presents some problems with stability as well. To get around that somewhat, you have this labrum, labrum means lift. So we have this labrum of cartilage around that glenoid fossa that helps deepen that cavity, okay? So that helps deepen it a little bit so the humerus can get in there. And then, again, because this is such a highly mobile joint, we have a whole bunch of bursa sacs. You saw it around the bursa, synovial sacs, like a little balloon for friction, that we have between all of those tendons and the ligaments and all of that in that region. Does that make sense? So because it's so mobile, it's more unstable. Because it has a shallow glenoid fossa, it's more unstable. So in order to get around that, we increase the depth of the glenoid fossa with that labrum. We provide a lot of ligament for stability around this joint. And we have a lot of bursa in there because of all of the movement. Yeah. You lie to me. Lies, all lies. She said we skipped over this. I could have sworn we went through this. I'm losing my mind. Okay, hey guys, act like you're just going into this. So let's talk about first intended sheet. Thank you. You gotta remind me of these things. I'm becoming aged. So this is in your joints outline. Right? You find it? What part is it in? It's literally right after. It's right before synovial, right? Right after cartilage and joints. You with me? You there? So much paper flipping. How much paper do you guys take? Seriously. It's like, oh. Are we there? If not, let's just write it down. Okay. How many of you guys, so these bursa, are these essentially, as it says, uh, bursa singular bursae, they're small sacs of cavity filled with synovial fluid. And I think I mentioned this before, maybe it was an action center. You guys know when you go to like a convenience store and they have those little balls at the, at, up by the register that you can squeeze them and they're kind of almost weird. Right? It's like everyone squeezes them, so you need to go get a tetanus shot after you're done touching it. Right? That's kind of like a bursa. And this bursa are basically situated between all of the places and joints that you can possibly have friction happening. Between bone and the muscle. Between tendons and the bone. Between muscles and the muscles. They're just kind of like you take these little synovial fill balloons and you tuck them in in all the nooks and crannies of your joints. We got a bunch of them at the knee, which is what's showing here. So you can see we've got one literally right on top of our patella, 
We've got a couple below the patella. We have some behind it, and even more than I've shown you. So you have a bunch of these at your shoulder as well. How many of you guys know old people? Your parents. Which, by the way, are probably younger than me. But anyway, anybody heard from getting bursitis? It's a super common old people thing. Right? Or you yourself have had bursitis. Oftentimes it's like in the shoulder, right? That is an inflammation of the bursa sac. It's bursitis. So this function of these, as I mentioned, is to reduce friction at these joints. If you think about it at these joints, every time you move a joint, there's a whole lot of stuff happening there. You've got tendons pulling across the joint, you know, you've got ligaments in there, you've got baskets. There's a lot happening every time you move a joint. So there's the potential for a lot of friction. Now in the hand, we, we saw this when we were talking about the hand and retinaculum and stuff. You have an elongated, it's essentially an elongated bursa sac. It's called that tendinous sheet, flexor tendinous sheet. We mentioned that. And what that does is your tendons actually go through that and it allows those tendons to glide unobstructed in your carpal tunnel without kind of any friction. Can you imagine if that wasn't there? It'd be like <laughs> every time you think. Is that the same as the No. Nope. It is not. Okay? This is literally a bursa, like a balloon filled with synovial fluid, and our tendons go through it. Because it's like an elongated one, that right there. Does that make sense? Okay. It allows the tendons to glide unobstructed through passages or tunnels, etc. Got some up there in your fingers as well. Okay. Now can we go on? Now can we talk about that again? Get yourself back to where we were. Okay, everybody with me on this? How unstable your shoulder joint is? If you ever watch those shows of like people that switch themselves down in the boxes and do really quickie, creepy things, it's always the shoulder joint that gets people the most. They'll be like, reet, 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 and it just kind of goes around and they're, it's, it's bizarro. Remember, they are not double jointed. There's no such thing as extra joints at your joint. I mean, maybe if you're kind of freakish and let that freak flag fly if you are. But for the most part, it's just you have super stretchy. Probably not a good thing. So this is a really good, here's an x-ray. Look how shallow that glenoid cavity is. I mean, this thing is just ripe for popping out. Right? So let's talk about it. Look at this shoulder joint. You can see the bursa here. Look at that massive bursa sac there. You got a tendinous sheet across that. You should have seen, you've seen this in action center if you've done this. Is this a right or a left? Anterior view or posterior view? It is a right anterior view. Okay? Coracoid process, chromium, clavicle. Okay? So, there are players. What we're going to do is we're going to start talking about those things that provide stability to the shoulder joint. We know what it does while I'm talking. So what keeps these things in line? The corticochromial arch is basically an arch formed by a ligament. Literally the corticochromial ligament. Don't overthink it. And one of its functions, it goes from, as you guys know, these ligaments and all these joints are literally named for the two bones or parts of bones they go between from the coracoid to the acromion, coracoacromion. Now, this function to help keep the humerus from being shoved up and out of the socket. So you can imagine if you put a lot of force on that, maybe you're falling or something, 
it would actually help prevent the humerus from being shoved superiorly up and out of that socket. Not just with that ligament, but with the bony structures there as well, obviously. So we're going to see that the uh, shoulder joint has kind of protection on all sides here. Anybody here injured their shoulder joint besides a uh, rotator cuff injury? You have? What would you do, Diane? I separated it. Well done. How'd you do it? Golf cart injury? <laughs> Basketball? Yeah, and I'm really on me on the floor. There's a whole lot of people landing on other people here. Soccer, yeah. Craziness. We'll talk about separated in a moment. Okay, so that's one. Now, look at this view. This is a side view. It's like you're looking at your shoulder from the side. We've taken away our humerus here. Humerus is not in this picture. Is this a right or a left? It is still a right. There's my sacromium. There's my coracoid process, okay? So, we've got a coracoacromial ligament, which we just saw. There's the side view. But now we have, oh, there we go, corticohumeral ligament. And it's in the name. It literally goes from our coracoid process to the humerus, or another ligament that we're going to talk about in blending and going around the humeral head, I should say. So that corticohumeral ligament, along with this glenohumeral ligament, And the glenohumeral ligament, we've got a superior, a middle, and an inferior. So that kind of corticohumeral ligament kind of blends with that glenohumeral ligament, kind of forming a nice capsule, a part of the capsule around the humerus. But look at this picture. Do you see any of these things on the posterior side of the humerus? Posterior side of this joint at all? No, they're all kind of at the top and the anterior side. So what is supporting this joint posteriorly? Which muscle? Our rotator cuff. Remember? There they are. So anteriorly, we have this glenohumeral ligament, along with our coracohumeral ligament, along with our coracochromial ligament, and then posteriorly, and then somewhat anteriorly as well, because as you guys recall, we have that subscapular tendon. So we've got that stability all around this glenohumeral joint, either via ligament, glenohumeral, or via the rotator cuff muscle. Now there's one more. I know you're like, how can that be? Right? This bad boy. That biceps brachii tendon, the long head, goes right up through that groove and helps. This is actually one of the major stabilizers of that joint. Is this bicep brachii tendon kind of just locks in over the top of the humerus and kind of holds that sucker in place? <coughs> That's just good times, people. Good times. All right. So if we move on to other joints in the region, that was just essentially our glenohumeral joint. But remember, we've got a clavicle here that we need to kind of bring into play. So this is our shoulder girdle, our scapula and our clavicle, our pectoral girdle. 
to the acromioclavicular joint, otherwise shortened to your AC joint. It's literally between the acromion and the clavicle. It's not all that strong. It's not nearly as strong as your corticoclavicular joint. It's not all that strong, which means it is actually susceptible to injury. Happens quite a bit. Rupturing of this joint is actually quite common. Either you break the clavicle or, or both, or you rupture this AC joint. I believe this is what Sam Bradford did when he was still at OU. Right, so you can rupture it to varying degrees. You can just um, rupture that AC joint, or you can rupture the AC joint with the corticoclavicular joint. If you do that, then really there's not much holding that kind of on, and you get the shoulder separation. Your, your thing kind of tends to, right? It's not like it's going to fall off. You're not going to be dragging it, right? But it tends, that's the shoulder separation that you have. So, highly unstable joint. Here is an anterior dislocation of the right shoulder. Look at where your glenoid fossa is. Look at where the head of the humerus is. That's going to leave a mark. That is going to hurt. Okay, so it's not all that difficult to be able to, with a violent, I mean, it's surrounded by the ligaments and the tendons, but nonetheless. So here are those various um, kind of AC joints. There's the AC that you just barely tear it on that one, grade one, grade two, you completely tear it, and a grade three, you tear that, and the clavicular joints. And so you get, essentially, a separated shoulder. So if you look here at this guy, it doesn't look all that. You can see how this is a little lower than that is, right? If we look at the x-ray, you can see that this has kind of fallen away from the clavicle, or the clavicle has kind of popped up a little bit. Okay? You could probably do a little wax in there, too, but that's not important right now. So there's just, this is just something that a student had one time. You can actually get lots of tears of that labrum. Tearing the labrum is actually fairly common. Right, this is one of my student athletes, one of the, one of the, one of the little javelin thrower, right? So she tore the labrum kind of longitudinally. And then basically, kind of the same support you need at the shoulder, you also need at the hip. And we're not gonna go into all of that, but it's basically the same idea. You have a, this is a slightly deeper pocket here, our acetabulum. You still have that acetabular kind of labrum to deepen it even more, okay? So you can see that it's, a little bit of a deeper ball and socket. It needs to be because it's weight-bearing. Our shoulders are not. But you still have all of those ligaments around it like you do at the shoulder, okay? So let's move on to some elbow joints. We're gonna work our way down the body. So we've already studied the joints of the elbow. What types of joints we have. Remember we have hinge joints between the radius ulna and the humerus. And we have a pivot joint between what two bones? The radius and the ulna. Okay? So we have the hinge joint mainly between the ulna and the humerus, but the radius kind of tags along. And then we have the pivot joint between. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk in more detail about what stabilizes these joints here and then mention a little bit of what the radius and the ulna are doing down at the hand. Okay? So the joints at the elbow, there's our two types of joints. We remember we've got the joint between the humerus and that ulna and that radius. That's a hinge joint. 
So how are we going to lock in that joint? How are we going to lock in those forearm bones with our arm bone? We do so via these ligaments on either side, and collateral ligament is actually quite generic. We've got collateral ligaments in our knee, we've got collateral ligaments in our ankles. Okay, so it's fairly generic for ligaments that are usually on the sides of joints and prevent kind of that side-to-side -side movement. So that's kind of with these collateral, what is the generic kind of thing. So our ulnar collateral ligament, it's obviously going to be on the ulnar side. I shouldn't say obviously, but going to be on the ulnar side, which means if it's on the ulnar side, it's between the ulna and the medial epicondyle of our humans, because that's ulnar side, right? So if you guys remember your elbow joint model, it's just going to be the ligaments. You don't need to know any details of parts of the ligaments or anything. It's just the ligaments on the ulnar side. So if you can tell ulnar versus radial side, you can't go wrong in this model, okay? I mean, I guess you could probably find a way to, but I hope you would. So the man, easy cheesy, yes? So the radial side is not quite as obvious. It is, but it isn't. So if we go to the radial side, we also have a radial collateral ligament. Locking our radius into the humerus. But there's a big difference. So this is going to be basically from the lateral epicondyle of the humerus. If you remember, the ulnar side is from the medial epicondyle. So same idea there. However, it doesn't necessarily insert directly on the radius bone. It inserts on this little ligament here. You guys remember this from lab called the annular ligament? Is that ringing a bell? So that ligament holds the head of the radius to the ulna. You can see that. You know how the radius sticks in the ulna notch, the radial notch of the ulna, excuse me, right? To hold that head of the radius in there, you need this annular ligament. Just kind of locks it in. And so our radial collateral ligament much of it will insert on that annular ligament, and it does so so that you can allow free and independent rotation of the radius. If you're locking that radius in with all these ligaments, it's not going to be able to rotate as freely during supination and formation. Does that make sense? But if most of this ligament attaches to the annular ligament, then the radius can rotate freely. That's a big difference between the two sides, the ulnar and the annular ligament. And you can see that in this picture, which is kind of it. So there's our ulnar collateral, there's our radial collateral, there's the annular ligament holding in the head of the radius, allowing functionally for free rotation of that. Okay? Now, so this joint between the radius and the ulna, we know that is the other joint, that is our pivot joint. Right, we know that's a pivot. That's our second type of joint at the elbow, is the pivot. Okay? So we know that that joint is locked in place via that annular ligament. For the hinge joint, collateral ligaments help kind of stabilize that. This pivot joint between the radius and the ulna, the annular ligament stabilizes it. But we actually have two radial ulnar joints. This one at the elbow. That's our proximal one, and we have one at the wrist, yes? Do they come together at the wrist? Yes, they do. So if you look, there's our distal radial ulnar joint. And functionally, what do you think functionally the distal radial ulnar joint is? 
What type of joint? Think of what type of movement you have between your radius and the ulna. What type of movement between your radius and the ulna do you have up here by the elbow? Rotation. Pivot, right? Would you also agree that there's some rotation happening between the radius and the ulna down by the wrist? Ignore what's happening with the wrist bones. I'm just asking you radius and ulna. It is a pivot. That joint between the two is also a pivot joint. You have the radial end slightly rotating against the ulna. Now, before you ask, that radiocarpal joint where the radius articulates with the carpal bones, because technically the ulna does not. There's actually a big wedge of cartilage in between. It's the radius that does more of the articulating with the carpal bones. That's condyloid. It's not all that important, but everyone always asks me. Okay, I'm not gonna hold you to remembering that. But that is a condyloid joint between the radius, that radiocarpal joint. If you've ever heard of Tommy John surgery, those of you that are into uh, baseball or, I don't know, maybe they have it in softball, who knows. But basically it's a replacement of, it happens kind of, um, what does that say, 56 and 68 uh, that has it done, I guess it affects there. Basically the ulnar ligament from the repetitive kind of force and throwing <coughs> that, uh, with that ulnar collateral ligament, they have to replace it. And so it's just called, usually take tendon from the forearm or the leg little figure eight. Isn't that fun? Brand new. This is fantastic. You can see that that's a complete dislocation of the radius and the ulna from the humerus. Probably happening from some sort of force where somebody extended and it just went Right? Pretty fantastic. Somebody gave that to me. I don't remember who. I should have gotten the story of that. But Here, my friends, see this little creature over here? It's what you might see when you're shopping at, I don't know, Walmart, huh? Which we all shop at Walmart, so I ain't judging. But you ever see that? And they can cringe. You ever see parents and they've got this little kid? And they're like, wee! And the kid's like, wee! Right? And they're so happy. But these things, these joints and all that, aren't really all that developed in kids. So it's not all that uncommon to pop that radius out of that annular ligament. Wee! Pop. <laughs> and the only way you can do it is you just gotta shove it back in. Not the parent. <laughs> Put this stick in your mouth and shove this back in. Now, go to the hospital. However, I just see this, you know, when people, I laugh about Walmart. Have you ever see people that have had it, their wits end with their children, which I get, you know, yank. Like, get over here, and they yank, and it's a really forceful yank. There's a really good chance of dislocating something when you do that to your child. I'm not saying it's a bad thing because it's a child, but you know, <laughs> just kidding. Too much. What's that? Does a dislocation necessitate a very much? No, not necessarily. Now it might have swelling, it might have a micro tear, something like that, but it doesn't have to be a full on. You can pop that out. Not all that. Not all that difficult. Especially kids. All right. Did you guys ever watch Lethal Weapon? Yeah. It's an old movie. Terrible. <laughs> right? Anyway, in that movie, he often, often gets shoulder dislocations where the humerus, well, it's not, but the humerus pops out. And it's so completely ridiculous. He's like, give me a minute. And he goes, I swear to God, it's a movie. He says, give me a minute. Uh. And he runs 
jumps into a wall and puts his hammers back in his joint. I can't even talk about it. It's just so stupid. I mean, I'm sure they do that in the hospital, but there's a little more manipulation you have to do than just, uh, you know, okay, I'm ready to go. It's so stupid. Okay, I'm telling you, I've ruined movies and shows for you. Have I ruined them yet? Excellent. Doesn't it just annoy the bejesus out of you? I just, oh my gosh, I just want to tell everyone around me and they're sick of hearing it, right? So let's talk about your knee joint. How many people, one of the most common injuries, after the ankle, how many people have injured a knee? There we go, and I'm guessing, how many people was it your ACL? How many PCL? There we go, I figured it wasn't many. One of the collateral ligaments or the menisci? Okay, you raised your hand, gentlemen, didn't you? What'd you do if you didn't, you didn't raise your hand? I did. What'd you injure? I dislocated my knee three times. What'd you, how? <laughs> <laughs> I have hyperextension in my knee. Oh, so it just, oh, got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I need to get that out of my head. Hyperextending a joint. There was somebody in here, where are you? If you just, I don't mind you asking about your elbow, that did the elbow trick. Who was that? Is that you? Is it, can you show me, I guess? <laughs> She's a catch. <laughs> Party trick right there, yes. You showed me that in Action Center, I was like, don't ever show that to me again. Oh. Wow. Just like in the elbow, 
they provide stability so that that joint, that's a hinge joint, doesn't try to do any abduction, adduction. So collaterals are collaterals are collaterals, okay? You also have a patellar ligament here, which you know that. That goes from, obviously, the patella down to tibia. And then you have these popliteal ligaments on the back. We don't spend a whole bunch of time on those, but they do provide some stability on the back of the knee, okay? So these are our extracapsular ligaments. The big players here, the important ones, for injury anyway, are that MCL and the LCL. Which of these two is most commonly injured, MCL or LCL? MCL, we'll talk about why in a moment. Okay, so if we go internal to that capsule, we've cut into the knee joint, we've cut through that capsule, now we're looking at these intracapsular ligaments. You guys are super familiar with these as your anterior and your posterior cruciate ligament. Cruciate just means cross. Crucify, right, for those of you that are biblical, cross, right, so cruciate. So we have an anterior and a posterior ligament that cross each other. That's why you can't use abbreviations. Because ACL, the C stands for cruciate, MCL, the C stands for collateral. Does that make sense? If you're wondering why I require that, okay? So these are our ACL and our PCL. So we're gonna talk about these bad boys in more, in more detail. This is essentially a anterior view and a posterior view, okay? So kind of with your knee bent. So let's take a look at that. Here is our anterior cruciate ligament. Its big function is to prevent hyperextension of the knee joint. So that's its big function. That's the function that kind of makes sense to you guys, right? Preventing hyperextension. Preventing your knee hinge from going the opposite direction, right? You don't want that, okay? Anatomically, what does that mean? That means it prevents the femur from sliding posteriorly on the tibia. So if you think about your knee joint, if you have hyperextension, if it bends the wrong way, that's essentially your femur sliding posteriorly on your tibia. And this ligament prevents that. Because what it does is it goes from the front of the tibia to the back of the femur. So you can't pull that, it, it, it doesn't allow that femur to pull posteriorly on the tibia, so it won't allow for hyperextension unless you blow it out, of course. Now, obvi, if you got your ACL and it prevents hyperextension of the knee, what would you suggest your PCL is going to prevent? Hyperflexion, which is a little weird because nobody ever thinks about hyperflexing their knee because it's the way that it's supposed to bend, yes? But just like any joint, you can bend that too much in one direction. Okay, you can, or with a little twisting, right? People that slide, people in football, when you guys get tackled or something, you just get bent all weird and kind of contorted. You can hyperflex that knee joint. That's clinical. Anatomically, what does that mean? It means the femur is sliding anteriorly on the tibia. And in this case, that ligament goes the opposite direction of the anterior cruciate. So it goes from the back of the tibia to the front of the femur. Preventing, especially like imagine every time you go downstairs. Here's your femur, here's your tibia. Every time you go downstairs and you bend, right? There's the chance of that femur pushing forward on 
the tibia. So if you go and they check you for a torn ACL or PCL, anybody have that happen? Yes, you have, right? What did they do? They should have. One thing they can do is they'll sit you on the table and they will grab your tibia and if they can pull it forward, which basically means your femur can go posteriorly, if they can go forward, you've torn your ACL. If they can push your tibia backward, which means your femur basically is going anteriorly in the tibia, then you've blown your PCL. Does that make sense? And this, you can still walk on these. Your knee's unstable. But I remember one of my TAs a few semesters ago tore their ACL, and they were still walking around. I'm like, can I see it? So we sat her up there, and we were like, oh, yeah, you really did. You're totally playing with your knee, right? Hope you didn't mind. So here's how it often happens. It's not just about kind of hyperextension. But you can often tear that ACL because the ACL is actually tight when the knee is flexed. So when you flex your knee, that ACL is tight. So if you have any kind of blow to the knee, particularly a lateral blow, from, like you get tackled from the outside, you see it all the time in football. You get tackled or you get this twisting with a fixed foot, it's going to tear the ACL, but it's also going to tear if it's tearing that way, it's going to tear your medial collateral ligament. In addition to, which we haven't talked about yet, your medial meniscus. It can tear all three. And when it does tear all three, it's called the unhappy triad. Because you've torn your ACL, your medial collateral ligament, and your medial meniscus. Can you walk on that? Uh, that would probably be a lot more painful because of the tear to the medial meniscus. I don't know, anybody ever had the unhappy triad and just walked around on it? <laughs> then probably. Okay, but super common. There's a closer picture up and why that would tear the medial collateral ligament but not the fibular collateral ligament. Now, one of the reasons why when the MCL gets torn you often tear the meniscus is because the two are attached to each other right through the fibrous capsule, they're kind of stuck together more than the meniscus and that fibular collateral ligament, which are separated by a muscle. Anyway, you can often, you don't have to tear all three at the same time, but if you really go for the gold, right? And I've got a video I'll show you on Monday. I'll show you the gold. So here's your meniscus. Those are those plates of cartilage, fibrocartilage, that basically separate the condyles of the femur and the tibia. Because you never want, we know this, you don't want bone on bone. Even bone that's, that has a cartilage and it's kind of outer layer. You try not to, certainly not on a weight bearing. So you have these C-shaped cartilages. They act as shock absorbers. You've got a medial meniscus, a lateral meniscus, which is much more complete and much more C-shaped. Basically, it has to do with, remember I told you the end of the distal end of the femur is not symmetrical. And these two are attached to each other via that little transverse ligament. So when you have a fake knee put in, and you have the titanium end of the femur and the titanium part of the tibia, they actually put these plastic inserts in that mimic menisci that are different, that basically separate the end of the femur from the end of your fake tibia. 
a student who, when he bent his knees, that's his patella. There's where it's supposed to be. You can see it's over there and it's over there. Of course, I'm like, oh my God, that's awesome. Can I get a picture? Of course, for him, it hurt like heck. So he's since had surgery. But you can see that it doesn't always track in that groove on the camera. We're going to stop there. The last thing we have to do is put, and finish that up on Monday, go into new stuff. Make sure you guys take a break this weekend.